Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. If you are a mom in here, I hope you feel cared for and loved and appreciated today. And maybe that means you're a grandmother or if you're an aunt, sister, cousin, friend, for all the women here, thank you for all that you do. Really grateful for you. Um, and I, I want to mention one other thing before we get in this morning. And I want to ask for you to forgive me if I'm not perfectly pre- precise in my wording here. Um, but, but we know that Mother's Day, is, while it's a celebration for some, it's really difficult for others. And that's where you might find yourself this morning. Maybe you have lost a mother. Maybe you've lost a child or you have a broken relationship with a mother or child. Maybe you're struggling with infertility and so badly want to have a child. Maybe you're single and desperately, more than anything, wish that you were married and could have a family. And if that's you this morning, and if today's really difficult and hard for you, uh, I just want to say that I'm sorry. And uh, you do not have to pretend today. Um, If you need to uh, be upset, if you need to cry, if you need to just uh, know that it's hard for you, uh, what we say often here at New City Church is that if you're in Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And so you do not have to pretend like today is a joyful occasion for you. We'd love to to grieve with you if that's where you find yourself. Um, And with that, if I could say one other thing, um, I know this this week, particularly with Mother's Day, might have made this more difficult for some of you, Uh, but as many of you are probably aware of the Supreme Court leaks that happened this week and how potentially uh, Roe versus Wade might be overturned later this summer, um, I want to say two things if I can. Uh, First thing I would say, uh, is that yes, I, we as a church believe that every human being is worthy and dignity and matters. It doesn't matter the gender, your gender, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, it doesn't matter how smart, smart you are, how wise you are, how big, how small you are, how developed you are. Uh, all of that matters and God cares for all life. And, but I also want to say this, if you find yourself here this morning or if you're watching online and you have had an abortion, or if you are a man in this room and you have coerced a spouse or perhaps a former girlfriend to have an abortion, and this week, and hearing everything that was said has made you feel overridden with guilt and shame and regret, and if that is the reason why today is hard for you, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to hear this. God loves you. He desperately loves you. And there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Your decisions, what you have done, what all of us have done or have not done, do not define us. No one is too far removed or no one is unworthy of God's grace in, his, in our life, in your life. And if you feel like you have to carry around this secret that if anyone ever finds out, you will be judged and you will be uh, sent away. That is not the case. That will not happen here. You are loved and you are forgiven. So I just want to say that this morning. Now, um, that being said, uh, we're going to finish our series this morning in Nahum chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one around you, page 830. If you have your own Bible, I've said this for all the weeks of the series. Don't have any shame of turning to page 1 on your table of context and try to find where in the world this book actually is. Um, I know I mentioned we start off maybe talking about uh, some heavy topics. That kind of goes well with what we're going to talk about today. Um, What's interesting is typically at New City, we just preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes we do series, but typically we do just text and we just go straight through books of the Bible. Um, Today uh, is one of those days where sometimes things just work out great. And what we're preaching on has to do with a holiday or whatever, and it's amazing. Um, In other days, it's like today. And so I don't know about you, um, but this is the most non-Mother's Day sermon I have ever preached, and it might be the most non-Mother's Day sermon you have ever been preached to. And so that's what we're going to to look at. As we begin today, I want to set this up by asking us this question to consider this as we read it. And the question is this, right? How can sinful people be saved? 
How can broken people, people full of regrets or shame or maybe bad decisions that you have made and I have made in the past, how can we be saved? It sounds great for me to say that God loves you, but how do we actually know that that is true? How can a sinful and broken people be saved? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, the book of Nahum, really quickly, is the prophet Nahum is in, in the 600s. He's telling Israel uh, that Assyria and the capital city Nineveh, who has been a world power for almost 200 years uh, and has, has placed them in captivity, um, is going to be destroyed. So it's a prophecy of this is what's going to happen. And so in response to that, Israel and many other nations in the world are going to be excited and God is going to rescue his people. And so uh, Nahum has been prophesying about what that's going to look like. And in Nahum chapter 3, he gets um, pretty graphic and descriptive, uh, and descriptive of what the fall of Nineveh, the capital, capital of city of Assyria, is going to look like and what it's going to mean for God's people when he rescues them. So here's what it says, Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here we go. It says this. He says, woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword and shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. Because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and her sorcery. Happy Mother's Day. So this is <laughs> Nahum talking about how evil and destructive Nineveh, the capital city, and Assyria has been to surrounding nations. And so chapter 3 begins here talking about or describing the panic and the confusion that will happen to the capital city Nineveh when it is overtaken, right? This nation that does all of these terrible and wicked things to other people will now have it done to itself. That death and destruction will come to the evil empire of Assyria because of the evil and the lies and the wickedness that they have put on so many other people. Now, I said this last week. I'll just say this one more time. Again, it is worth repeating that the negative idea that we have this idea of the God of the Old Testament is judgmental and is wrathful and is angry. Um, that only comes if you don't actually take any consideration what he's actually destroying. If you actually see what he's coming up against, then maybe this negative idea of God becomes a positive idea of God. As we've said before, the nation of Assyria did some evil, wicked things, not just the typical, we're going to take you over, but some awful things. And so I don't mean to be uh, graphic or descriptive or I say this for shock value, but I want us to really understand the weight of how the Israelites would have felt. So for example, to show you how a ruthless Assyria was, here's one quote from King Shalmaneser, who was the king of Assyria in the 800s. He wrote this, it'll be on the screen. He said, I slew, this is talking about a battle that he had with one of the nations. He said, I slew their warriors with the sword, descending upon them like Adad when he makes a rainstorm pour down. Adad was basically the god of the rains and the wind. He could provide crops and harvest, or through floods and hail and lightning, he could provide destruction. He says, in the moat of the town, I piled them up, talking about bodies. I covered the wide plain with the corpses of their fighting men. I dyed the mountains with their blood like red wool. I took away from him many chariots and horses broken to the yoke. I erected pillars of skulls in front of his town and destroyed his other town, tore down their walls and burnt them down. 
Uh, one biblical historian and uh, Bible scholar, W.A. Meyer, talking about what the Assyrian Empire did, he put it this way. He said, the atrocious practice of cutting off hands and feet, ears and noses, gouging out eyes, lopping off heads, and then binding them to vines or heaping them up before the city gates, the, other fiend, the utter fiendishness by which captives could be impaled or flayed alive through a process in which their skin was gradually and completely removed, this planned frightfulness systematically enforced by the bloody city, which is what Nineveh was known to by many of their captors because of these practices, was now to be avenged. This is the atrocious evil that the Lord is stopping and he's now going to condemn. And so this is who is going to fall, and this is to whom Nahum is prophesying doom against. And so that's why in Nahum chapter 3, verse 4, when he talks about uh, prostitution language and deceitfulness, it's because what would often happen is the Assyrians would promise wealth and happiness to nations who bowed down to them, and then would only oppress them and rule them later. I'll say this really quickly. If you're not a Bible nerd, I'm going to ask you to put your Bible nerd on hat for a second. This is actually what happened to Israel. So about mm, 150. 50-ish years before this story, 20 years before Nahum is currently on the scene, this is how Israel became captive. So in Israel chapter, or sorry, in Isaiah chapter 7, you have the famous passage where it talks about the virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, and then Matthew talks about how this was also a double prophecy for Jesus, and we actually talked about that this past Christmas series. But what happened was at this point in Israel's history, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, were split up. And the king of Judah, and who had Jerusalem, the capital city, was Ahaz. You can read about Ahaz in the book of 1 Kings. He was a wicked king. And he was afraid that Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, the nation above Israel, was going to come and attack Jerusalem and take them over. And so Isaiah comes to the wicked king and said, God is going to protect you. You just need to trust him. And he tells Isaiah to ask God for any sign that he wants to show that God will protect him, even though he's a wicked king. But in his self-righteousness, he says, no, I'm not going to tempt God, and he doesn't do it. But what 1 King tells us is the reason he doesn't do it is because he has already made a deal with the king of Assyria, gave him a bunch of gold and other things to bribe the king of Assyria to, uh, to take on or to uh, capture the, uh, how to say it, the king of Assyria to take over the kingdom of Syria, and that way that they wouldn't attack Jerusalem. So if Assyria fights Syria and Israel, then the southern kingdom will be spared. Now, that's what happens, but then, oh, wouldn't you know, about 50 years later, Assyria also decides to make Jerusalem and Judah a vassal state as well. So uh, Jerusalem, or, or, or the kingdom of Judah, is experiencing their own brokenness, that they are the, actually their reasoning for trusting Assyria is what has made them now also to be a captive state and experience their oppression of Assyria. This is what happen, often happen to many nations, and this is what Nahum is prophesying against. Um, if you were around at this time, you would be really excited that this was actually going to happen. And so here's what it says next in verse 5. He says, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find any comfort? Uh, where, can I, where can I find any, anyone to comfort you. 
And so again, here, Nahum is giving the consequences of the evils and the sins of Nineveh and how, what they have committed, that they will be exposed to the nations, that all the nations will hear about their shame and will hear about their defeat. And the question is a rhetorical question, who will show sympathy to you? The answer, of course, is nobody will. Instead, instead of sympathy, it's going to bring celebration and jubilation if people are excited that the captor has now been defeated. Nahum is saying here, God is against them, and this is what happens when the Lord is against you and when the Lord doesn't save you. Nothing you can do is going to stop the judgment of God. Now, again, to be fair here, this is pretty intense language, right? This is really intense language here, but it shows, again, it shows the reality of what happens when God is rightly against you. Now, again, it's hard for us to imagine this a little bit, uh, maybe God's judgment or his condemnation against evil, because in our cultural moment, we use, when we talk about sin and brokenness, we use the term, we use the term mistakes a lot. Like very rarely do we do wrong things. We typically make a mistake. That's what actually happens. Or what we also might say um, is that we're very, for lack of a better word, it's very, we're very a victim-minded culture. So if we do anything wrong, it's because bad things happen to us. So maybe the trauma that you face as a child or different things that happen to you, that's why you have decided to make the poor decisions that you have made. Now, let me be very clear. Trauma is definitely real, and it has huge effects. And some of you have been, been through some very horrific things that have certainly caused you to make certain decisions that you have made. That is absolutely true. But the reality is, as Scripture shows us, as Nahum and the rest of Scripture shows us, uh, that God, that the reality of sin is that at the end of the day, it is on us. And that Nahum and Scripture are clear about the end result of rejecting God. When we choose to go our own way, when we choose willfully to do things that are dishonoring to God or dishonoring to other people, it matters. And one of the things that the book of Nahum shows us when it comes to the character of God is that all sin will be dealt with by God. That's what Nahum is showing us here, that all sin will be dealt with by God. God. Again, if you've been with us, remember Nahum is kind of the sequel to the book of Jonah, if you're familiar with that book, which happened about 150-ish years before Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh takes place, where God tells Jonah to go and, make, and tell them to repent. They actually do repent. Uh, we know that the repentance couldn't have lasted that very long because historically they got pretty quickly back to their death and destruction. But God has been overwhelmingly patient and overwhelmingly merciful to them, that he has withstood or with, uh, has not, his held back his judgment that they rightly deserved, right? That's why, for example, in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 11, it says, be assured that a wicked person will not go unpunished, right? That God one day will right every wrong, and your sin and my sin will not go unpunished, that he will deal with it. And as we've said a couple of the last couple of weeks, that we should not mistake God's patience with ambivalence. We should not mistake God's mercy with this idea that he does not actually care. It will be dealt with. It will be dealt with. Now, now some of you, maybe to make this in practical terms, um, I don't know if anyone, when you were growing up and you ever got in trouble and your mom or your dad would say, like, wait till the other parent gets home. Did that ever happen to anybody? Anybody? Some of you, right? Right? Yeah, some of you have two hands up. That's right. Right? That, that, that's, how, that's what happens to some of us. Now, now, what happens in that moment is you did something wrong, and there's a punishment that's going to come. And although, right, at the moment you're not yet in trouble, you know the smackdown's going to come sooner rather than later. Now, some of you were great. God was kind to you and gave you parents that forgot to punish you, right? I know that because there was a lot of kids in my neighborhood, and that happened to all of them but me. 
Like we would get in trouble. I'd be at their house and they'd be in trouble. Like wait till your dad gets home or wait till this happens. And then nothing would ever happen. For me, my parents never forgot ever. And in fact, my parents were probably worse than all of your parents because they, what would happen, and this is not a joke. There were times where I did something wrong. Well, I didn't do something wrong. They thought I did something wrong, right? I didn't actually. Um, and they, there was not, in their mind, there was not an appropriate punishment at the moment. So they would say, you're going to be punished at a later date, and we'll tell you when we decide. Now, again, that might, for some of you, it's like, there's no way they're going to remember. They never forgot. Like, it happened. And the very worst time it had ever happened, when I was in middle school, the church I grew up in, we had these all-nighter lock-ins every once in a while, pretty, pretty big youth group. And there was a couple of times where we went to Adventure Landing here in Raleigh, and they reserved it from midnight to 5 a.m. This was a middle school boy's, like, piece of heaven. And so we would go. I mean, obviously, our parents paid for it, but, like, as a kid, everything was free. So you would go. They rented out the whole thing, unlimited pizza, unlimited laser tag, unlimited arcade games, unlimited go-karting, and unlimited body odor. It was amazing, <laughs> right? It was, oh, my goodness. It was, I, to this day, I mean, I would still do it now. I'm 30-something years old. I'm like, let's go, right? Anyway, uh, so one time, the day before the next all-nighter at Adventure Landing, guess what happens? Dylan, I don't remember what it was, but I, all I remember is not going. They told me the day before, you're not going to go because this is the punishment for whatever you did. I'm like, oh, I was devastated. And then going to church on that next Sunday and everyone's talking about everything they did. Oh, my gosh. It was like the worst thing ever. I don't know what I did, but I, didn't get a, I was not able to go. Right? And that's what Nahum is telling us here, that we might feel like we've gotten away with it. We haven't felt the effects of it yet, so it must be all good. But a righteous and a judgmental God who is full of righteousness and love has to do something with sin, and he will do it. And this is what uh, the city of Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria is experiencing. And then it says this in verse 8, chapter 3. He says, are you better than Thebes? Now, Thebes was the capital of Egypt, which is the great nation before Assyria took them over. He says, are you better than Thebes? Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall. Cush and Egypt were, an in, were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were her, among her allies. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also become drunk. You will hide. You, will also, you also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land's city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates." So Nahum here is talking about the fall of Egypt, which looked impossible before it actually happened because they had the Nile River, they had a desert surrounding them, they had allied nations who were supposed to be on their side that looked like nobody could touch them until the Assyrian Empire were the ones that made them fall. They looked unbeatable until they weren't. And this is what's going to happen to Nineveh and Assyria. It looks totally unbeatable until it won't be any more. Now, he does say this in verse 13, when he talks about their troops being like women, this is not a uh, denigration against women. What he's talking about here is the reality in the ancient world that you would send men to war. 
Now, for, for most of human history, especially in the ancient times, uh, war was hand-to-hand -hand combat. There were no guns. There was no guerrilla warfare. There was no technology. It was pretty much meet at a field. Here we go. Right? Just, this, we're just going to have at it, right? And so in a situation, generally speaking, biologically, men are stronger than women. And so if you had a group of men fighting a group of women, a group of men in this time would, would win just because of their pure, brute strength. And so what Nahum is simply saying here is that no matter what you do, you are not going to be able to stop this attack. They are going to beat you. You will lose. That's what he's saying. Now, that being said, as we learn about the character of God in Nahum, and particularly today as we talk about sin and its destructions and how we will ultimately be face-to-face -face with the decisions we make, the question that we can ask ourselves and you can ask yourself is that are you concerned about the sin in your life? Are you, am I, concerned about the sin, the bad decisions, the things that we do that we know have fallen short of what God would ask us to do? Are we concerned about it? Or do we think it's not that big of a deal? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, likely you would say, yeah, I wish I didn't do it, right? I wish I didn't do it. We all wish like we didn't do these things. But the question is, are we intentional about pursuing holiness or are we not? And are we not potential, uh, uh, intentional about pursuing holiness in certain areas and aspects of our lives? Because we don't think that our sin is going to cost us that much, right? Or do we mistakenly, again, view God's patience as ambivalence? Or God's mercy as, well, he must be busy, or well, it's not as bad as those other people, so I'm going to get away with it. It's not that big of a deal. The question that Nahum presents to us as we read about the character of God in this book is that it really matters. A righteous and holy and just God, it matters when we break from his holiness. Are you, particularly if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, concerned about the sin in your life? Or do you think I've gotten away with it this, this far, or it hasn't really been that big of a deal, or God doesn't ha hasn't seemed to judge me yet, I think I'm okay. Does it cause you any concern? Because Nineveh, of course, would say no until they, until they realized it was too late. Because here's what happens next, verse 14. Now, these next couple of verses, I'm just going to read a verse and explain what's going on because, you know, the geography and all these sort of things we're not necessarily familiar with. So here's, he's going to talk about what this attack is going to look like. He says this in verse 14. He says, draw water for the siege, strengthen your fortresses, step into the clay and treat the mortar, take hold of the brick mold, right? What he's saying is as the enemies draw close, Nahum is telling uh, the Ninevites to uh, get ready for the attack, though it will be useless, right? Draw water before the water supply is cut off or repair any holes in your wall. Verse 15, he says, the fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locusts. Multiply yourselves like the young locusts. Multiply like the swarming locusts. What he's saying there is he's sarcastically telling the Ninevites to multiply themselves and grow their numbers as if that is actually going to make much of a difference. Verse 16, he says, you have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips their land and flies away, right? The capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, is very wealthy. And all of these merchants and people that made you so wealthy will be no help of you to you and your survival. Verse 17, he says, your court officials are like the swarming locusts and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off. And no one knows where they are. 
In other words, all these people of influence and riches will run away from you when your city is overrun, that your officials and scribes will be no more, and all of your prominent people will flee. It will be like you never even existed. It will be total destruction. Now, again, this might be hard for us to fully realize, and so I want to give you a practical example. Before I do, I want to see if anyone's going to be able to track with what I'm going to say here. Um, has anybody either played the game Age of Empires, or maybe you had kids that played it growing up? Who's familiar with the game Age of Empires? Just raise your hand. Some of you? Okay. All the young people in the middle? Yeah. Um, so this was a great, it was a great uh, computer game when I was a kid. And basically what it was, was like a, it was a game where like you could make your own kingdom and there'd be other kingdoms like in this big plot of land. And, and basically the, there's different game types, but the point was to build up an army and a village and all these sorts of things and destroy all the kingdoms and that you could win. And so basically you would like create villagers and they would, and they would gather resources and you would build houses and you would build universities and monasteries and you would build uh, all these different things to make troops and you could level up your empire and you could build walls and you would gain all these resources and you would go to battle and you would try to, try to beat other people. And so this game was a lot of fun. And uh, Age of Empires 2 was the best one and part of the best one because there was something you could do in this Age of Empires 2 that you could not do in any other version. And so what you could do is you could create allies, like to start the game, you could like do 2v2v2 or whatever, 3v3, whatever. So you could have allies on your team. And so what that would happen is you wouldn't attack each other. You could build bases in each other's walls and all that sort of thing. And so I would start the game and I liked to have some allies because that was always fun. So you wouldn't play by yourself. And uh, they had uh, monks in Age of Empires 2. Now they had monks in all versions of this game, but in Age of Empires 2, the monks could convert things. Yes, I said things not just people. So here's what you would do. Here's what I would do. I would make my army, make my monks, and then you could like make your monk convert like a villager or an or, or like a military unit from the other team. And if they, if your monk didn't die before he was done converting them, like it would become your possession or part of your team. So you could like expand like your military empire and you could get houses and villagers, you all these things. And so what I would do is towards the end of the game, if, if I was winning, um, it's, you know, it's not just enough. To, I would make a great king. It's not just enough to like beat, beat some people. You got to beat everybody, right? And so I would build all of these monks and I would have like 10 of them and I'd have them go into one of my allies' bases. Like I would go in their walls and you could build these bomb towers. And so to help defend your, you know, your city, you could build these bomb towers. So when you were, people would attack you, they would shoot bombs at them. And I would switch the setting from ally to enemy. And it took the computer about 45 seconds to switch back because they'd be like, why are you doing this? We're supposed to be friends, right? And in that moment, I would have all of my monks convert all of their bomb towers and so by the time that they became my enemy, I would send my, my, uh, my army in. The bomb towers would be destroying everything. And it was complete destruction. And it was awesome, right? And so naturally, I became a pastor. Because it was just, that's what you do, right? You destroy everything, right? And that is what name was saying. This is what it's going to look like, right? You are going to be completely overwhelmed. Dylan Dotson, Age of Empire style. There is nothing that you are going to be able to do to stop it. It is Toil chaos, that is what's going to happen. And then he says this, chapter 3, verse 18. He says, the king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officials sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. Verse 19, there is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. Now, the irony here is that the king will be the last to know what is happening to his kingdom. And by the time he figures it out, his power will be no more. Right? The high-ranking officials who were supposed to watch over everything, they will flee, they will run. The shepherd who is the king here will die, and his sheep 
will scatter. He will be totally unprepared for what is going to happen. And again, if we continue today talking about the character of God and how he views sin, using Nineveh as an example, the question for you and for me as we talk about sin in our life and perhaps our non-intentionality with holiness at times, here's what I know what can happen. I think here's what Nahum is showing us, is that apathy towards sin leaves us unprepared for its consequences. Right? It's not so much that we think sin is fine or that we don't think we should not sin, but our apathy towards it, our lack of being intentional against it, can leave us unprepared for what it actually will do for us. Right? And in fact, here's what I would be willing to bet. Um, your biggest sin struggles, your biggest issues in your life that you are currently facing probably did not start out that way. Right? They probably started out small, that you thought were not that big of a deal, that I could get away with. It's just this one time. It's just going to be once a week. It's just going to be twice a week. It's just going to be once a day because it's helping me get through and it's helping me do all these things. It's not that big of a deal. And now you find yourself with deep struggles, with maybe addictions that you cannot seem to break because in the beginning, it didn't seem like that big of a deal until it becomes totally consuming for us. And again, this is what's happening to Assyria and Nineveh. It got more evil and became more wicked, and they thought that they were totally okay until it was too late. And I just know for me and maybe for you that there are things in your life that became that way because they didn't seem like a big deal, and now you desperately wish you could go back and change how it all started. What we see here is apathy towards sin. Leaves you, leaves me unprepared for what it's going to ultimately do for us. And that's what's happening to Nineveh. And then this is how the book of Nahum ends. The second, well, I'll just read all of verse 19 again. It says this, there is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. It's over. Then he says this, all who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Right? What Nahum is saying here is that those who have been oppressed by you, which are many, will rejoice when they hear the news of your downfall because it means that they are free. Now, to be clear here, again, at the time of Nahum's prophecy, Assyria would have been the most dominant world power for over 100 years, which means not a single person alive, not a single Israelite who would have heard this prophecy would have ever experienced their freedom from Assyria. They have no idea what this is like. And so everyone will celebrate their downfall, that for the first time in their entire existence, they will be free. Now, again, as we've said throughout this book of Nahum, that this is a gloomy book. As we said today, there was maybe some not so exciting passages to read on a Mother's Day. But again, it's a good reminder for us when we read scripture that what does this text mean for me is not always the, the best approach to reading scripture. Because scripture, again, is not about you, it's not about me, it's about God, his character, who he is, and his plan for redemption, and how we might experience life in his kingdom. And so in this particular book, in the book of Nahum, we see how God addresses the oppressive, uh, sorry, how God addresses oppressive and tragic cycles of human violence, of wickedness, and sin. And it, we also know that history is filled of people, right? It's filled of tribes and people who have hurt other people, who have caused suffering to other people, who have caused death and destruction to other people. And God is using Nahum to show us in this book that God is grieved by evil, that God is grieved by suffering and, and the suffering of the innocent. 
And the reason that he brings his wrath on evil is not because he's angry or because he's moody, but because he is good. That it is his goodness and justice that moves him to fight and to one day ultimately destroy evil. That God's judgment on evil is good news, unless, of course, evil and selfishness rule your life, and then it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. But we all desperately want God to stop evil and brokenness and sin in the world, but we also want God to start with other people and not with us. Which brings us back to the beginning of this book when Nahum talks about, the, he foretells the destruction of Nineveh, right? The reason God does all of this is, again, it's not because he's wrathful or because he's angry, but because he's good. And here's what it says in chapter 1, verse 7. Here's why God does all of this. You can flip there all, just read it. In chapter 1, verse 7 of Nahum, it starts out by saying this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the invitation for you and for me is to trust in God's justice, knowing that in his time, he will bring down the oppressors of every time and every place. And as we've talked about sin this morning, and you have maybe felt the weight of it, and you have said, well, I'm not, ha- I'm not perfect. Does that mean God is going to destroy me? What is going to happen to me? Here is the invitation of Nahum. Here is the invitation for you and for me. Here's what the book of Nahum is trying to show us, that God cares for those who take refuge in him. God cares for anyone who would, be, who would admit their brokenness, who would admit their need for him, and would trust in him. See, the reality of the situation is your sin is heavy, my sin is heavy, but God's grace is more. That God's grace is sufficient, right? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to stand in our place, right? And not because we're kind of done some bad things and he's just going to help us to get across the finish line, but because we are woefully inadequate. And Jesus gladly and willingly came for you and for me. If anything, my hope here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that you would see maybe the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus in a new light. That this wrath and this anger towards evil, that's what Jesus experienced for you. That's what Jesus experienced for me, that it matters to God, who is a God of love, but also a God of justice so much that he has to do something with it. And that is why Jesus came. And so our response to try to experience God's love, to try to experience the kingdom of God is not to do better. Our response is not to white knuckle it. Our response is not to be, I just got to be a better person or I got to stop making so many mistakes. Our response is simply to take refuge in him to admit, admit our need for him so that we can experience the goodness and the mercy of God. That way we can see Jesus on the cross and his resurrection over sin and death, knowing that this is what Jesus experienced for you and this is what he's experienced for me and what he gladly experienced for us so that we could experience him. And so as I close this, this morning, I just want to leave us with this question. Knowing that God cares for those who take refuge in him, here's a question for you. What does it look like for you to take refuge in him today? What does that look like for you? For some of you, it might be for the first time admitting, I don't have it all together, and I need Jesus, and I need his grace, and I need his mercy. I just need to be honest. Uh, For others, it might be, yeah, I've been struggling with this thing that I've been keeping a secret from everybody because I'm afraid what anyone's going to do or what anyone might say. And God's saying, look, I've got people in your life that I want to walk alongside of you who love you. Uh, Maybe for you and for me, it's to pursue holiness and for certain areas of our life that we've been struggling, that we've been letting go, thinking it's not that big of a deal, that we need to face it before it becomes a very big deal. God cares for 
everyone who takes refuge in him. And so what would it look like for you to take refuge in him today?